Good day and welcome. This is Bob Keebler, and joining me today are Professor Mitchell Gans and Attorney Jonathan Blockmacher to discuss Trombetta, an important case involving 2702. Welcome, Jonathan and Mitchell. Well, Bob, thanks very much for having us. Yes. Uh, Mitchell, you. you and Jonathan have written an extensive article, to say the least, that is being published this month in the Journal of Taxation. I know the editor said it was a tour de force. Please give us an overview of why this case is so important and what practitioners should be doing about it. Good afternoon, Bob. Thanks for having us today. Here's our sense of Trombetta. We think it's an important case because it clarifies the contours of a landmark case, the the Supreme Court decision in Fidelity, Philadelphia. Practitioners may or may not be aware of it, but this case, Fidelity Philadelphia, really sits at the bottom, at the foundation of all kinds of installment sales and private annuity transactions. Uh, Practitioners often worry about how to structure these transactions. They worry about whether they need seed money and how all of that works. And they may not be aware of it, but all of that stems from this case, this landmark uh, case that goes back over 60 years in the Supreme Court. Trombetta uh, applies Fidelity Philadelphia and wrestles with it uh, in the context of a private annuity transaction. And that's why we think it's so important to think about Trombetta. It also has some interesting implications in terms of the application of Section 2702 in the context of these transactions. And so we uh, thought uh, quite a bit about it in wrestling with this case. And we put forth our thinking and what we think is an interesting argument on 2702 in the article, and hopefully we'll get a chance perhaps a little later to talk about it. Jonathan, can you walk us through the basic facts of the case? I mean, what happened here? How did they get to court? And what, you know, basically how did the court view this? I certainly can, Bob. And the facts, uh, as always, are sometimes very, very important. Uh, the decedent, uh, a woman in this case, as part of her overall estate planning, entered into a private annuity transaction with a grantor trust. Now, I'll drop a footnote here to say that because of proposed regulations, which would be retroactive, anybody who's going to do a private annuity really has to do it with a grantor trust as opposed to a non-grantor trust or a family member. In that connection, the woman transferred primarily rental real estate she owned, some of which was subject to debt for which she was personally liable to that trust in exchange for a private annuity. It's a little different from the private annuities that I've done because it wasn't for her life. It was for a flat 180 months. Unfortunately, and this is one of the very bad elements that the court uh, uh, decided to rule against the estate on, the value of the annuity she got back was less than the value of what she transferred. So there was a gift that was made. And as a consequence, that led the court, we believe in part, correctly or incorrectly, to determine that Section 2036, the transfer, a gratuitous transfer with a retained interest rule, would apply. Uh, In the form of the transaction, she said, I'm retaining an interest. She didn't say, I'm exchanging this in full value for a private annuity, but she said she'd retaining it. Interestingly also, and I'd never seen this in a private annuity document before, 
she specifically put in things that would not trigger Section 2702. 2702, of course, is the section which says if you create a trust and you retain an interest in it, we're not going to give you any value for the interest you retain, essentially unless it's in the form of a qualified annuity. In fact, that's why we can use so-called grant or retained annuity trusts or GRATs, because we meet all the conditions that the regulations provide under Section 2702 to have a GRAT where we can support subtract the value of the annuity retained from the assets put in. So they had those provisions in theirs and others which showed that they were concerned about Section 2702, and Mitchell will address why that's so important a little later. In addition, there were some cases where the annuity was not paid in full in some years. And Mrs. Trombetta's children had guaranteed the annuity payments to her, but when the trust didn't make the payments or make them on time, the kids didn't put up money and make the payment. It's clear from the facts that the trust had plenty of money, and it was really Mrs. Trombetta who decided she didn't want it at that time, and she got more back later. But they didn't follow it strictly, and when they didn't make the payments, the kids didn't make the guaranteed payments that they were supposed to be due. Uh, the court also latched very strongly on the fact that, as I said, this was encumbered real estate in which she was personally liable, and the trust was basically paying down the mortgage debt for which she was personally liable. And that was another indication to the court that she had, in fact, retained an interest in the trust, causing 2036 to apply, which in turn, of course, caused the trust to be in her estate. Mitchell, uh, what were the court's specific holdings here? And for each, can you give us an overview of the court's reasoning, please? Sure. It would be my pleasure, Bob. Essentially, what the court held is that Section 2036 applied. And, of course, as, as all uh, know, uh, when 2036 applies, all of the assets in the trust are includable at fair market value at the date of death. Uh, and so, obviously, that's terribly problematic for anyone who's doing a, an installment sale or an annuity transaction. They certainly do not expect and certainly do not want all of the assets in the trust or the partnership, if it arose in a partnership context, to be included based on date of death value in the gross estate. So what happens is this. When we do uh, annuity transactions or installment sales, we want the transaction to be viewed and treated for tax purposes as if it were truly a sale to the trust and not a transfer with a retained interest. Now, those words are, are crucial, a transfer with a retained interest, because when we think about 2036, I think if we strip it down to its bare essentials, we all have a, a kind of an intuitive sense that 2036 applies when you make a transfer and you retain an interest. Well, the question is, how do we apply that concept when we're dealing with a sale, an annuity sale or an annuity transaction? And in these, uh, this case I mentioned at the outset, Fidelity Philadelphia, the Supreme Court tried to give us some contours for determining whether a transaction should be viewed as a sale to a trust or should it be viewed as a transfer with a retained interest. And as I've said, of course, if it's a transfer with a retained interest, 2036 is going to apply. And presumably, if it's a sale, 2036 should not apply. And so in this old case, uh, I think it's court said, well, yeah, we've got to make this distinction. And in, actually in dicta, in note 8 of the decision, the court said, look, uh, if it's essentially and truly a sale as a matter of substance, uh, not form, but as a matter of substance, if it's truly a sale, 
then we will treat it as such, and then 2036 does not apply. You haven't retained an interest. So if, for example, I sell something to a trust and I retain a note and I die while the note remains outstanding, even though one might perhaps look at the payments on the note as a retained interest, the Supreme Court was, I think, saying in this footnote that if you meet our criteria that we're going to set forth, we'll talk about it in a moment, then you will not be treated as having made a transfer with a retained interest, but you will instead be treated in substance as having made a sale, and therefore 2036 will not apply. And the three elements that the Supreme Court laid, set out, uh, laid out in terms of trying to establish the criteria for a sale are these. One, the obligation to make the payments to the decedent, to the, obviously the person making a sale, is not chargeable to the transferred property. Two, the obligation is the transferee's personal obligation. And three, the amount of the payments to be made to the decedent are not dependent on the actual amount of income to be generated by the transferred property. Okay, so those are a lot of words. But the bottom line, it seems, is that if you transfer an asset to a trust and receive back a consideration um, in the form of a note, you should not have, or in the form of an annuity, you should not be viewed as having retained an interest if these three uh, requirements are satisfied. Now, what does that boil down to? What it boils down to is this. If you satisfy these three criteria, and you've got to satisfy all three, but if you satisfy all three, then you are not deemed to have retained a string, a 2036 type, 2036A1 type of string. And so that would render 2036A1 inapplicable. Now, we're going to go through it in a moment, but before I do, I think it's valuable to say that there's a second exit or a second way out for taxpayers. Uh, I think Jonathan likes to call it a get-out-of-jail-free card, and that is the bona fide exception. If you look at 2036 carefully, you see that the elements are you've made a transfer and you've retained an interest. And the next element, and you've got to retain the interest for one of the time periods, you know, for life. We needn't get into that here. But the next element is that it doesn't constitute a bona fide sale for full and adequate consideration. And that's Jonathan's get-out-of-jail-free card. So even assuming you've made the transfer and you've retained the interest for life or for one of the time periods, you can still get out of 2036 jail if you made the transaction or the sale for a, a, in a bona fide context for full and adequate consideration. So I think it's important to keep that in mind. A lot of practitioners think, um, well, I've got to meet the bona fide uh, exception to get out. And the answer is no, you can get out simply by showing that you haven't retained the string. And Fidelity Philadelphia tells us how to not be treated as retaining a string in one of these transactions. So the bottom line is, if you take the three, the three uh, tests that I gave you from the court's footnote 8, I think most people think that what it means, and I, I do think it means this, that if the trust has sufficient seed money, that should do the trick because now you're dealing with someone else who has money in their own pocket with which, that they're bringing to the table. I mean, if, if for example, I were to sell an asset uh, to my daughter and she gave me a note, that shouldn't be a 2036 transaction. It's, it's a sale. And what the court in Fidelity was trying to say is, well, if, if I make a sale to a trust and the trust has its own assets, i.e. seed money. Seed money is a critical aspect of um, planning in this area, and all of that seed money um, lore, L-O-R-E, <laughs> that, we, uh, that we're familiar with comes from Fidelity Philadelphia. 
Now, um, another way to defeat the string argument that the service might make is if the purchaser um, makes the promise to pay and some third party guarantees the obligation of the purchaser. So, for example, um, if I sold an asset to a trust, and assuming for the moment the trust did not have sufficient seed money, or indeed any seed money, we might still be okay under Fidelity Philadelphia if some person with the financial wherewithal, perhaps a family member, guaranteed the trust's obligation to make payments to me. And it's interesting, but if you take a look at footnote 8 in Fidelity Philadelphia, so if you if you drill down into the cases that the Supreme Court cites in footnote 8 of its opinion, you will see that at least one of those cases involved a guarantee. And so the thought is that you can satisfy these criteria in Fidelity Philadelphia, as I say, either by the trust having sufficient seed money or the promise to pay on the part of the trust being guaranteed by some third person who has the financial wherewithal to back up that guarantee. Before I leave that point, I just want to make one more observation. We all know, of course, that the question of seed money is, is a complicated one in that how much seed money is sufficient is a very problematic question. A lot of people think, based on a private letter ruling that's about, what, 15 years old now, that perhaps 10% is sufficient. Uh, of course, there's no definitive answer to that question. Okay, I want to repeat, I think it's worth repeating, that again, even assuming you can't get to the point where you have seed money or a guarantee, you may still be able to defeat the 2036 argument if you can satisfy the requirements of the bona fide exception. The, we think that Trombetta is important um, because it gets into these issues that we, as practitioners, I think, that practitioners deal with all the time in doing these transactions, but, you know, there isn't much law on it, much, not much developed law. So Trombetta, you know, comes to the table and becomes, I think, an important, uh, an important consideration. Now, in terms of seed money, I think Trombetta tells us some interesting things. What it says, in effect, is that you really can't get the seed money into the trust as part of the sale transaction. Because as Jonathan was pointing out before, in Trombetta, it was essentially a part sale, part gift. The value of the asset conveyed to the trust was greater than the amount of the annuity that the decedent transferor had received back. And indeed, the transferor filed a gift tax return showing the excess as a gift. And the court is in effect saying, well, that's not sufficient in terms of seed money. Now, you might think, gee, if I transfer an asset with, say, a value of 100 and I get back an annuity worth 60, that I've given $40 of seed money to the trust because the, seed, the trust is going to have some equity immediately after the transaction or, as, or upon receipt of the, the transferred asset from me. But yet the court says, in effect, no, no, that's not good enough. That's not enough to get you out of 2036. Um, that's not the kind of seed money Fidelity Philadelphia was thinking about. So I suppose what comes out of this then, uh, from a planning perspective, is that you should not be thinking that you can get your seed money in as part of the sale by doing a part sale, part gift. Indeed, if you're doing a part sale, part gift, as they did in Trombetta, um, I think you can expect the IRS to argue that you've retained, that, that you didn't, that there was not sufficient seed money in there with a quick sight to Trombetta. Then the case becomes interesting, not only in terms of seed money, but also in terms of the guarantee aspect of Fidelity Philadelphia. In this case, we have a guarantee, 
um, which is I can't think of another case involving a guarantee other than the one that was cited in Fidelity Philadelphia, which which uh, was analyzed in terms of 2036. Well, I guess there was that Fabric case, forgive me, that we cite in the uh, in the article, uh, tax court decision. But in any event, coming back to this, the important thing on the guarantee issue is the court's reasoning. And this, I think, was one of the things that immediately caught our attention when Jonathan and I read Trombetta. The court says that it's going to disregard the guarantee, going to disregard the guarantee because the guarantors never, in fact, made payments on the obligation. And we found that very troubling because the question, it, would, it seemed to us, and it's, as we thought about it, should not be on whether or not the payments were made. If, if in fact, there was no need for the payments to be made, the fact that they weren't made should not be consequential. I mean, think about it. Every time you do a transaction uh, like this, an annuity transaction or an installment sale, and you do a guarantee, the hope, of course, is that the guarantor will never make the payment. And if the guarantor never makes the payment because the underlying obligor makes all of the payments as required, then how could that implicate 2036? How could that bring 2036 into the mix? It should not. I mean, it, it would essentially, the court's reasoning in this case, um, practically eliminates the guarantee as a viable way of doing these things. It practically says, uh, if the guarantor doesn't have to make the payments, 2036 is going to apply. And to the extent the court can be read as saying that, Jonathan and I, I think, were both very troubled by that. The final thing I, I'd like to say here is, Jonathan and I thought a lot about, and have thought a lot about over the years, the application of 2702 in the context of these transactions. And it's quite apparent that the lawyer who did the transaction in Trombetta was also uh, concerned about 2702, because they included in the trust instrument provisions that were designed to render the trust compliant with the regs under 2702. And, and for those of you who are interested in that, you can take a look at what we say about that in the article. Now, when we focused on this, um, we thought and have thought over the years that obviously 2702 is not entirely clear in terms of how it applies with respect to an annuity transaction, a private annuity transaction, that is, or an installment sale. Um, and what we, begun, what we began to realize is that 2702 is really uh, patterned in some ways uh, after 2036, because both sections deal with transfers and retained interests. Both sections seem to apply, not seem to apply, do apply, where a transfer has occurred and there's a retained interest. And there's this notion uh, that the Supreme Court has given us in non-tax cases that where Congress uses a term that has a certain well-accepted meaning under existing law, that Congress means to plug into that existing meaning. We should not readily assume that Congress intended to create a whole new concept out of whole, you know, out of whole cloth when there's a well-accepted meaning in existing law. And so... Since the Supreme Court had already decided Fidelity Philadelphia some 30 years before Congress enacted 2702, it makes perfectly good sense under this reasoning to go back and embrace what Fidelity Philadelphia had to say on what constitutes a transfer with a retained interest for purposes of interpreting and applying Section 2702. So we think that 2702, as a result, 
should be construed to embrace Fidelity Philadelphia. And so what we mean by that is if you satisfy the criteria set forth in Fidelity Philadelphia, the three I gave before, which essentially boils down to seed money or a guarantee, if you have either of those, we think 2702 should be inapplicable. And we, as we point out in the article, uh, if you don't take this approach and you say, well, you know, no, we're not going to take that approach, we're not going to bring in Fidelity Philadelphia, you wind up with a section 2702, which practically has no boundaries, no limits. I mean, you could say anytime you make a transfer to a trust and you get back a note, oh, have you made a transfer and retained an interest? And obviously, they did not intend uh, for 2702 to have a such far-reaching and unlimited consequences. So an appropriate way, we think, to uh, to give some boundaries and some appropriate limits to 2702 is to understand it as having embraced the principles the Supreme Court gave us in Fidelity Philadelphia. Mitchell, that was a very insightful analysis, and I think it's going to help the listeners a lot. Um, this is a case, clearly, that everyone should read. Jonathan, you guys have really convinced me that this case is very troubling for practitioners advising their clients about private annuities and installment sales to grant or trust. So what should practitioners do to avoid the adverse effects of this case um, broadly? I mean, what, what, uh, it obviously means more than just a private annuity sale, potentially, and what can we do to protect ourselves on IGIT sales and any other transaction um, that, where this, the tentacles of this could reach? Bob, that's a great question, and we go into a lot more detail in our article. And by the way, uh, folks listening, we do not get a royalty on the number of people who acquire the article or read it. It really is worthwhile um, uh, to read the article, and I commend Mitchell for pushing us both to really do the article. I kind of blew him off at the beginning, but it, it's a very, very important case. Uh, uh, two or three things I'll mention, and then we're going to give you a home run winner if you represent a married couple, uh, something uh, I don't think that anybody listening has done before. You, you, first of all, want to have a lot of time between putting in the seed money and doing the transaction. Uh, that's a critically important factor. I would possibly recommend different tax years, perhaps even a whole year. I think that would be helpful. In fact, maybe you could even get seed money from a pre-existing trust. I also think a guarantee from a pre-existing trust, which is not for the seller grantor, but say for descendants, uh, also would make very, very good sense to consider doing. Uh, you can use guarantees, and indeed, there's an indication that if the trustee is personally liable, that's okay. So maybe you can get your accountant, Bob Keebler, to be the trustee, and he'll guarantee it. Um, I don't think the guarantees are dead in the water, but if you have them, if there is a shortfall, make sure it is paid. Again, as Mitchell said, the court said, ah, they never paid. It wasn't a real guarantee. Try to make it really look like a, a really good guarantee. Uh, make sure in all events you comply with Section 2702. Now, this is a little bit of a horn to the dilemma, because if you're saying we're complying with 2702, which is a retained interest area, as we know, which smacks of Section 2036, that looks bad. But I think that what you can recite in it, although this is not a retained interest, it is a full value exchange, nonetheless, uh, in order to ensure no adverse result under Chapter 14, and you put in the following provisions. I don't think you lose because you acknowledge that the IRS might try to do something even though you think you can't do it. 
Now, let me tell you what we think can work. Say I want to do an installment sale to a trust. I create the trust. I put some seed money in it. Maybe it's adequate. Maybe it's not. We don't know what it is. But I'm not going to do that as an installment sale. I'm going to do it as a cash sale. Where is the trust going to get the cash? My wife is going to lend it to the trust. And so my wife loans it to the trust, or indeed I could create a grantor trust for my wife, which uh, with like a Q-tip trust. I could put $20 million or whatever I need into a Q-tip trust for my wife. It's going to be a grantor trust with respect to me. The trustee of that trust loans the money over to the trust to which I want to make the installment sale, and I'll be purchasing it for cash. If I purchased it for cash, the IRS can't say there was a retained interest. I have no retained interest. I've sold the asset. I was paid in full. I walk away. My wife's Q-tip trust can't be charged with it because she hasn't retained anything but making you know, a loan to it. And that's going to, I think, be treated as a real bona fide loan. So we think that that's a better thing to consider uh, than, than doing it the way that most of us have been doing it in the past, which is having an installment note with some seed capital or some guarantees, because Trombetta tells us that simply may not work any longer, at least if you get before Judge Marianne Cohn, who wrote the decision in Trombetta. So, Bob, that's a little bit of advice that I would give here, but I urge people to read the article in full. Jonathan Mitchell, thank you both very much for spending so much time with Lineberg Information Services listeners today. Uh, clearly an important case. I think anyone that's drafting any type of transaction involving an IGIT sale or a private annuity sale should spend some time, uh, read Trombetta, uh, read the footnotes, and listen carefully to what um, the really sage advice that has come from Jonathan and Mitchell. Again, thank you for joining us today.